Radio. The Papacy, a talk by Kevin Wagner at the Immaculata Mission School 2014, held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. Okay, I'm very, very happy to be here this afternoon, tonight. That's tonight, definitely. Uh, the plan is to talk for no more than an hour. Okay, and if I see, see you yawning too much before then, we can even perhaps finish a little early. But uh, the, the hope tonight is to sort of discuss the papacy, in particular uh, the, the primacy of, of Peter. So we're going to, to look at uh, this in perhaps six sections. We'll see how we go. Uh, we're going to look at the function of the Pope, uh, we're going to have a, a little bit of a, a think about this strange situation where we had this last year, uh, where we had two popes, and we still have, well, two people who have been pope at the same time, living at the same time. Uh, we're going to also have a go back to the start and think about and hear about how the papacy came to be through the person of Peter. Uh, We'll try and do a, a fairly quick history of the papacy, uh, particularly in regard to the church's attitude towards papal primacy. We'll have a look at some of the roles of the Pope, uh, and then if we have time, we'll look at some common arguments against papal primacy. So there's a bit to get through. Uh, and the way I'd like to start is just to go through some of the papal titles. So I don't know if you're aware, but the Pope is not just the Pope. I remember being on a plane going to, from England to Rome probably 12, 13 years ago, uh, talking to a, a young Italian woman, quite pretty, not as pretty as my wife, of course, <laughs> and I was trying to make conversation, and I also was very interested to know when the Pope would be showing his face. And I was saying, the Pope, when, when's the Pope coming out? And she's going, Pope, Pope, I don't understand. What's Pope? I'm thinking, you're Italian, what's wrong? <laughs> and eventually I showed her a picture and she's gone, ah, Papa. And I thought, oh, that's really, really beautiful. Because the Pope is certainly our father here on earth in a particular way. Uh, more so perhaps uh, than, than our parish priests and our priests who are fathers in, in a certain sense, definitely, and our own genetic fathers and this. But the, the Pope is a, is a father in a particular way. So some of his titles, <clears throat> apart from Papa, uh, His Holiness, the Pope, each of these tell us something about who he is. He's the Bishop of Rome, and he's the vicar of Jesus Christ. That means he's Jesus' earthly representative. He's obviously the successor of St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles. He's the supreme pontiff of the universal church. He's the patriarch of the West, which means that uh, when we think in terms of East and Western parts of the church, this is, he's in charge of the, the West. This is obviously a matter of contention, uh, or has been in the past. Probably his most beautiful title is he's the servant of the servants of God, a title which was 
very uh, much at the heart of the ministry of certainly Pope John Paul II. He's the primate of Italy, which means he's the most important bishop of Italy. Surprise, surprise. Uh, he's the archbishop and metropolitan of the Roman province, which means simply that he's the diocesan bishop of the metropolis of Rome, which meant more, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago than it does now, perhaps. And his only secular title is he's the sovereign or sort of king monarch of the Vatican City State. So he's the boss when it comes to the Vatican. Now, this, this last year, I was about to say this year, was very particular. Uh, I remember being incredibly shocked and amazed and couldn't really believe it that Pope Benedict had resigned uh, and everyone like myself was probably looking up you know, news stations to, and lots of different news stations because you, know, you can't trust the news sometimes and it became obvious that the Pope was resigning. So immediately that meant that as the director of the school and the one in charge of the timetable, my next month was just hectic completely rearranging things because there was a lot of last things for Benedict. Then, of course, there was the conclave. And the conclave was an incredible moment to live through. Uh, and I have to say, it was, a, it was an enormous blessing to be able to be in St. Peter's Square uh, in the evening when the white smoke came. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing sense of communion to be there in front of uh, St. Peter's Basilica with what ended up being perhaps 100,000 people in the square. That's a lot of people. That's as many as, almost as many, no, that's less. Sorry, it's more, I'm a maths teacher by trade. Uh, it's actually more than we're at the, the first day of the Boxing Day test. That's a lot of people, okay? Uh, and they came from everywhere. Now, being Italy, of course, we couldn't actually communicate with the outside world because they haven't quite invented mobile phone towers yet. So we couldn't let the world know that this was happening, but it was right in front of us. And when finally Pope Francis came walking out, it was, it was amazing. We were going, who is this man? Someone had worked out he was from Argentina. And then he said these words, and I'm going to read it out because it's really important for our understanding of who the Pope is uh, some aspects of understanding that, and perhaps uh, a very good indicator of what this current papacy will be like and how it may reshape the way we see the papacy. He came out and he said, Brothers and sisters, good evening. Probably, Fratelli sorelli, buona buonasera. You know that it was the duty of the conclave to give Rome a bishop. Very important to notice that. The conclave was there in Pope Francis's mind and our understanding to give Rome a bishop. So the Diocese of Rome received a bishop that day. It seems that my brother cardinals have gone to the ends of the earth to get one, but here we are. I thank you for your welcome. The diocesan community of Rome now has its bishop. Thank you. And then we, of course, we prayed for Pope Benedict. After that, he says, and now we take up this, this journey, bishop and people. And I have to say, in those moments in St. Peter's Square, 
we genuinely felt, I think I can say this for everyone, we genuinely felt that he was there as our bishop in Rome. He was our local bishop. And, and this was the first thing, and I think it really touched the hearts of the Romans who were there. This journey of the Church of Rome, which presides in charity over all the churches. So the Church of Rome presides or leads the church in charity over all the, all the churches. So charity is a key to the rule of the Pope. So papal primacy is most fundamentally, I think we can say, a, an expression that has to be uh, rooted in love. So this is not a position of power in the secular sense. This is a position of love. And we go back to the title, The Servant of the Servants of God. I think we can see that this is, this is definitely the case. Because who was the greatest servant? It was Jesus, the suffering servant. How did, he, how did he show his love? He showed his love by suffering and dying on the cross. So if ever one day you have the privilege of being elected Pope, the only thing that you really have to worry about is dying. Okay? You're called to die for the world, to save souls. So he then asked us, uh, he then said, sorry, a journey, it's a journey of fraternity, of love, of trust among us. Let us always pray for one another. Let us pray for the whole world, that there may be a great spirit of fraternity. It is my hope for you that this journey of the church, which we start today, and in which my Cardinal Vicar here present will assist me, will be fruitful for the evangelization of this most beautiful city. So his first concern is for the evangelization of Rome. That tells us something, because I think in the past, perhaps we've had the wrong idea, and perhaps some, some people high in the church have had the idea, uh, certainly some popes may have, uh, that the, uh, the, the first thing for the pope to do is to evangelize everyone. It's true, he does have to evangelize everyone, but his first responsibility is for his diocese to evangelize his diocese. And he points this out very, very clearly at the start of his ministry. And then this was the part that I think I will remember forever. And now I would like to give the blessing, but first, first I ask a favor of you. Before the bishop blesses his people, I ask you to pray to the Lord that he will bless me. The prayer of the people asking the blessing for their bishop. Let us make in silence this prayer, your prayer over me. And this was the moment that was just, it made the hairs on your back just you know, rise because it was amazing. 100,000 people became silent. And I, I don't think I was the only one who, who went, oh wait, you mean we pray for you now? He was there, he bowed, and he waited for us to pray for him. It was an incredible moment of, of uh, humility. And he continues uh, by giving the blessing to everyone. So I, I, I wanted to begin like that because I think it's really important for us to, to know that the, the church's understanding of papal primacy is something that is evolving. Uh, it's something that is not static. Certainly, uh, the, 
the understanding has developed over 2,000 years and we're, we're fairly certain as to the, the, the framework for understanding papal primacy, but it is something that needs to be worked out continually because there needs to continue to be dialogue between the East and the West, the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, the Roman Church. And then also there needs to be continued dialogue between uh, the Roman Church and the Protestant churches, all of them. And in each instance, the, the issue of papal primacy is a difficult one. It doesn't mean that the Catholic position will change uh, in, in incredible unforeseen ways, uh, but the way it's lived perhaps may evolve. And I think we're already seeing some, some of that in the, the papacy of uh, Pope Francis. Now, another few little notes just about uh, this strange situation of 2013. Uh, I've often been asked to defend the papacy uh, because I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, Pope Francis is so great, you know, he, he loves the poor and he, you know, he's just so natural and, and it's true. He is all those things. But so was Benedict, so was John Paul II. It's just that he's got a particular South American way of going about things. He's not a German, or should I say Bavarian, uh, who's, uh, who's just an incredible scholarly theologian like Benedict, and he's not Polish either. Uh, so he is, he's a very particular person. Uh, I had the great blessing on July the 1st of meeting him, and I don't know if you've seen the copy of the, of the brochure. <laughs> Thank you, the person who did that. I was trying to find a picture of myself looking normal. Now, I don't have many photos of myself looking normal, so I sent in a picture of me serving at the altar in Domus Santa Marta, where the Pope lives, handing the, the towel to, to His Holiness. Uh, and whoever created the brochure <laughs> cut out probably the most important in the person in the picture, which was the Pope. But anyway, I think it was appropriate because I'm doing a talk on the Pope to now. He's a very humble man. Uh, and he's the right person for this time. Pope Benedict, people were saying, ah, oh, he's, he's not as popular as, as John Paul II. In fact, his audiences were more popular than John Paul II's at times. Uh, so each of these people have been given to us at the right time because, you know what, it's not just simply humans who choose the Pope, it is the Holy Spirit. So the papacy is, in a sense, a mystery because the Holy Spirit works in and through the papacy. So if anyone starts to say to you that Pope Francis is so wonderful, don't disagree with them, but defend our other popes as well, okay? You've all known three popes. Has anyone known four? Okay, technically I was alive when there was another one, uh, but I never remembered him. So these popes shape our understanding of the papacy, but it's, there's hundreds of popes and they each shed their own light on the mystery of the papacy. So let's go back to the first pope, St. Peter. Now it's probably technically uh, incorrect to call him the Pope, uh, the, the first Pope, uh, because he wouldn't, would probably not have known what that word meant. 
Okay, Peter probably didn't know what this meant. Uh, but certainly he is the rock on which our church is founded in a different sense to the way that Jesus is the rock and the cornerstone. But we can talk about that soon. So who was St. Peter? Okay, you probably all have some understanding of St. Peter. On Saturday, I think it was, we had uh, the, the gospel was the call of St. Peter. Uh, that's useful because hopefully it's got us starting to think about who he was. His name is mentioned uh, 154 times in the New Testament. Okay, so it's the second most popular name after Jesus. So he's right up there. He must be important. Uh, so that's under all his dif- the different versions of his name, of course. I'm not sure if you're aware, but in every list of the, of the apostles, his name is always first, and Judas is, is always last. Uh, and so we get a sense, perhaps, that he's the first among uh, the apostles. Uh, but one of the things we want to work out tonight is how is he the first? Okay, I may be the oldest person in the family, the first child, but in my, in my parents' eyes, I'm not... The, I'm the second oldest, but uh, in my parents' eyes, uh, I'm the first in age, but I'm not necessarily the first in honour or, uh, or value or anything like this. So we've got to try and work out what it means for Peter to be first. So Peter was a fisherman by trade, and uh, as we know, he was called by Jesus to become a fisher of men. He and his brother Andrew, as well as the Apostle Philip, were from the city of Bethsaida. Uh, They were sons of Jonas. Uh, If you go to Capernaum, uh, there's a church that looks a little bit like a spaceship uh, built above his house, which had also been a a church in previous times, Crusader Church. Uh, And it was in that house that Jesus cured Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, and uh, it's just south of the synagogue that Jesus was in when, he, uh, when it says that, that he taught as one having authority. You can find that in Mark 1, 21. Now, Peter had travelled with Andrew uh, to Judea, which, if you remember your geography of the Holy Land, that's way down in the south, sort of, uh, it's sort of close-ish to Jerusalem, but he was from up here, right up near the, near the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. So he's travelled all the way down here with his brother uh, to be with John the Baptist. And this is where he had his first encounter with Jesus. And then sometime afterwards, uh, probably not that long, uh, he experienced the call from Jesus uh, by the Sea of Galilee. So he was there uh, washing his nets Uh, somewhere between Capernaum and the modern-day Tabga. Uh, It's probably only a 20-minute walk from Capernaum. And uh, there were lots of crowds there. It was quite large. And so Jesus asked, as we know, he asked Peter if he could use his boat. And he, he went out a little bit and he addressed the crowds. We know the area where it probably was because it was a bit of a bay and it meant that it has sort of natural acoustics, so uh, it's, it's very interesting to, to see and to walk this part of the, the Holy Land. 
so when he finished speaking, as we know, he asked Peter to set, out, uh, set the boat out into the deep and to let down the nets. Now, Peter was a fisherman and he had this carpenter's son asking him to, to push out the boats. I mean, it's, you sort of, normally you wouldn't trust a carpenter's son to tell you how to fish, but he did anyway. And this is important for us because it shows Peter's faith right from the start. So he's gone out there and, as we know, uh, he's, he's caught a load of fish. Now, we, uh, that, that part of the, 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 the sea, there's, a, there's actually hot springs that run into it, and so it's a natural breeding ground for fish, so maybe Jesus knew that in advance. Uh, but either way, he knew, and Peter didn't, so it still shows that it's a little bit of a miracle. Uh, it doesn't matter who tells you otherwise. So after this, of course, Peter was just amazed by, and uh, he, his, his reaction was, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I think it's worth us thinking about how we would react under similar circumstances. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's quite incredible. Uh, and I think we can be a little bit like Peter at times when we, when we see how good the Lord is, because in a sense... We can look at Peter and say, well, why did you ask the Lord to go away when you've just seen how good he is? But I think that sometimes is a temptation for us that we see how good the Lord is and, and then we, we have this fear that perhaps we might have to give our life uh, to follow him and we start to doubt that God could be constantly so good. And I think it's a danger for anyone who goes on a retreat a period of intense formation, that afterwards that you could start to doubt the experience that you had here and that you could start to, uh, to uh, put Jesus second or third or worse. So uh, God's plan for Peter was, was very clear. And uh, in the words of Benedict, Pope Benedict, uh, Jesus replied by inviting him to trust and to be open to a project that would surpass all his expectations. So the Pope asks us to not be afraid because from now on you'll be catching men. So he asks that through the mouth of Jesus, of course. So I guess the question for us is, are we able to actually be open to a project that's going to surpass our expectations? That's a, that's a great challenge. That's a great gift in, in, our, in being Christian to, to know that God has these plans for us now sometime later Peter and the disciples were with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi that's a town in the very north of Judea uh, it's very close to the border of Syria and Lebanon uh, now it was situated near a temple to the, uh, to the Roman god Pan and so nowadays it's called Panias or Banias and it's worth trying to picture this because it, it helps us to reinterpret or to interpret the scriptures correctly. This temple, it was built into a, a cliff over, uh, in which was an enormous chasm. And the, so the temple covers this chasm. And if you were to look up to the temple, uh, the, to the cliff, as it, when it was sort of fully in operation, there would have been all sorts of horrific sacrifices going on. There would have been fire and smell of flesh and you know, uh, 
blood everywhere and all this sort of stuff. Now, it was within sight of, of this temple, or these temples, that uh, Jesus said the following. He said, who do you say I am? It's in Mark eight twenty nine, And we know that Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in Matthew 16, we hear Jesus' reply. He said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I think it's, it's quite easy to imagine now that these, these uh, gates of Hades or the powers of Hades would have been very clearly represented by the, uh, by the Temple of Pan and, and all these horrible sacrifices that were happening. This was the Roman sort of gods and it would have been quite horrific. And what Jesus was saying to these fishermen and people with trades, and in particular to Peter, the fisherman, was that the gates of this, all the, the power of Rome, the power of this enormous empire, this enormous war machine, you'll be able to overcome that. It will not overcome you at least. Okay. It's incredible to imagine that. A poor little fisherman being told, you're going to be able to overcome this. That's, that's quite amazing. There's an extra significance to the location as well because uh, out of here came one of the four ancient sources of the Jordan River. So uh, the, the fathers of the church have, have made the analogy uh, between the water that flows out of there, at the, from the, the, near the temple there, uh, which fills the Jordan, uh, to Peter, out of which flows the, uh, the grace required for the church as the rock, uh, Peter the rock. Uh, so you've got this analogy between Peter the rock and this rock or this cliff in Panias. So, uh, and so this grace flows out for the entire world. So, uh, it's, it's good to know that uh, some Protestants, not all, uh, uh, mix analogies and mis misinterpret this idea of Peter being a rock uh, and the fact that Jesus is, is a rock, he's the cornerstone, foundation. Of, uh, they, they misinterpret these, they, they try, and can, try and mix these analogies and they try to say, well, it's not possible for Peter to be a rock, because Jesus is the rock. So they try and reinterpret a little bit. Uh, but we see that uh, we, can't make, uh, we can't mix these analogies, because we see elsewhere in the scripture where it says Jesus is the teacher. And uh, in other times, Paul in particular calls some people to be teachers. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, we also have this analogy between God being the Father, and then also in Romans 4, 
Abraham is called the father of many nations. So we see that we need to be very careful with our analogies. So Jesus can be a rock and Peter can be a rock in a, di in a slightly different sense. So uh, both Mark and Matthew's Gospels uh, continue to describe uh, the encounter in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus explains, of course, that he's going to have to suffer and die and rise again. And then Peter, who unfortunately has this reputation of being impulsive, probably for good reason, uh, he dares to rebuke Jesus and say, no, this can't happen, it's not possible. We might think that's a perfectly natural reaction uh, and possibly we would do the same thing. I mean, it's, it's easy to see that Peter wanted the best for his friend. He didn't want him to suffer and, uh, and so why wouldn't you tell him, no, can't do it. But Jesus was pretty strong in return, as we know. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. It's Matthew 16, 23. So, having tried to be a good friend, he's just been called Satan. Uh, that's pretty tough, but, you know, it helps us to realise that, you know, God's plans, are, or our plans are not God's plans sometimes. Uh, and it also helps us to realise that sometimes... We suffer uh, and we can't really explain it because we can't see God's plan behind it all. So sometimes we, and I'm as guilty of this as, anyone, as everyone, uh, we look for ways to avoid pain rather than embracing it. And so when we realise that we've got this compulsive habit of trying to get away from pain and suffering uh, and keep preferring our own plans to God's plans, then it's, it's good at those times to, to remind ourselves that our path to sainthood, to sanctity, uh, is clearly marked on a map that's personally crafted for us by God himself, okay? And that this path sometimes will be hard, but it's filled with joy. So, Peter struggled to see divine will, and, but he was still given the keys of the kingdom by Jesus. That's a, a bit of a lesson for us all. Uh, although we are human, we are entrusted with divine uh, responsibilities at times. So a few more things about Peter before we move on. He was the first one to, to confess that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the first one to see Jesus after his resurrection. After the ascension of our Lord into heaven, Peter was the one who stood up and addressed the disciples uh, to find Oh, someone to replace Judas among the twelve. It's in Acts 1.15 to 26. A little bit later, in Acts 2.41, he spoke for and on behalf of the disciples uh, at Pentecost, and it's through his words that 3,000 people were baptised that day. So, uh, and of course, if we take a step back, he was also the one who denied Jesus three times, and he was the one who Jesus uh, asked him if he loved him three times. Uh, so we see the difference between Peter and, and Judas in the fact that Peter saw his, his error and he was filled with, with sorrow for his sin, for his turning away from the Lord. So uh, what was Peter uh, entrusted to do and who was he called to be? Well, uh, I'd like to take a little segment from 
John Paul II, uh, uh, which was from his homily on his, in his, for his inauguration to the pontificate, so back in 1978. He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. These words were spoken by Simon, son of Jonah, in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Yes, he spoke them with his own tongue, with a deeply lived and experienced conviction. But it is not in him that they find their source, their origin, because it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So they were words of faith. And these words mark the beginning of Peter's mission in the history of salvation, in the history of the people of God. From that moment, from that confession of faith, the sacred history of salvation and of the people of God was bound to take on a new dimension, to express itself in the historical dimension of the church. So this ecclesial dimension of the history of the people of God takes its origin, in fact is born, from these words of faith and is linked to the man who uttered them. You are Peter, the rock, and on you, as on a rock, I will build my church. So the church began at that moment, in a sense. Now I'd like to have a quick glance of the history of the papacy, uh, particularly in regard to papal primacy. Uh, we are not going to cover even a, a fraction, a small fraction of, of what uh, has happened over these 2,000 years, but uh, we'll give it a bit of a go. Uh, the reason it's important to look at the history is, as Cardinal Newman said, uh, because to be deep in history is to cease being a Protestant. Okay? Or we could say to cease maybe to be Orthodox too, perhaps. Or to cease being ignorant of our faith as a Catholic. Uh, so he was saying it, of course, because he was a convert from Protestantism. I know quite a number of people, really great people, who have studied the Fathers who have come to uh, embrace the Catholic faith. And I, I think it's not strange because of the fact that when we look at the history, as sordid as it sometimes is, we see what the truth is and uh, we see how the church came to be and we uh, have more justification for our faith, I think. So uh, another thing I would say about the, the papacy and history is that I think uh, if... The, the primacy of Rome uh, was just simply a matter of uh, self-promotion uh, on behalf of Catholics, then it would have been opposed. Okay? Certainly over, that, over the 2,000 years, people would have uh, opposed the papacy uh, just like other heresies and innovations were opposed. But there's actually a lot of silence regarding the, the juridical primacy of Rome. Okay, and we'll see this in, as we go through. Now, let's go to the Fathers. Okay. Saint Irenaeus of Lyon from the 2nd century uh, acknowledges the primacy of the Church of Rome over the other churches rather than the primacy of the Roman bishop over the other bishops. Uh, uh, but as we, as we should be aware, uh, a lot of this, uh, a lot, mainly due to the fact that uh, clerical titles like bishop and presbyter and deacon, uh, while there, there's evidence of them in the, in the New Testament, of course, uh, the, their full meaning only came to be 
uh, realised in the years after the Apostles. So Irenaeus and later writers realised that communion with the church depended on each local church holding to the same faith and that the standard for this faith was publicly attested communion with the Church of Rome through its bishop. Okay, so you can't have a church if you don't have the same faith. Okay, and Irenaeus realised that if, uh, had it, the way to ensure that you've all got the same faith is that you're in communion with the church in Rome through its bishop. Now, St. Cyprian of, of Carthage, who was a father of the mid-third century, believed that the chair of Peter was the first church from which the unity of the episcopate has arisen, and he acknowledged that to be in communion with the Bishop of Rome is to endorse firmly and to maintain both the unity and the charity of the Catholic Church. Okay, so it's the first church. He very clearly stated this way. Now, different popes understood their position differently as time went on. As we've seen, Pope Francis understands the papacy in a different way, uh, not an incorrect way, but a different way to Benedict uh, did and uh, John Paul did. Uh, so in, uh, in the 370s, Pope Damasus uh, began to adopt some functions and attributes of the Roman emperor or of a Roman governor. So he started to take on some sort of secular sort of characteristics. And in particular, what that meant is that he and some of his successors took more responsibility for matters outside Rome, outside the jurisdiction of Rome. Uh, and in particular, in regard to uh, adjudicating or sorting out some different disputes between bishops. So uh, also around the time of Damasus and afterwards, uh, the Pope started to identify themselves more with the person of Peter. Uh, and this seems to have come from the, the Roman legal tradition of viewing a person like if I, if I inherit the, the property of my father, then I in some way be, replace him. I become I sort of a substitute for him. And so the, the Pope started to see themselves a bit more in that way, particularly in regard to the mission of Peter. Uh, and so this was one of the results of this was that they started to see more the their responsibility for the pastoral care of, of all Christians. And so they came to exert their influence, the, the Pope started to exert their influence in three different general areas. Firstly, Italy generally, so this is beyond Rome, so Italy generally, then uh, for the West, the Western part of the empire, which was becoming more and more uh, clear to see as you had the, the centre in Rome, which was not always in Rome, and another centre in Constantinople, which was sort of the new Rome, which is sort of modern-day Turkey. So the empire was separating on a secular level at that time. Uh, and, well, there had always been some sort of separation, or often been a separation, but particularly since Constantinople came to be developed by Constantine in the early 300s, uh, you started getting this stronger divide between the East and the West. And in fact, certainly by the end of the, the fourth century, you had uh, Eastern and Western emperors, and it stayed that way for, 
well, the rest of the history of the empire, pretty much. So Italy, then the West, and then all the people of God, all the local churches. Uh, now, Pope Leo the Great in the mid-5th century really helped to define the papacy for the future. Uh, and he really understood that he had jurisdiction over all the people of God. So uh, he, he declared at one point, he said a lot of things, but in particular he said, through the most blessed Peter, chief of the apostles, the Holy Roman Church holds the principate over all the churches of the world. Now that's a big call. Uh, but it'd be worth saying a little bit more, actually, about that. Uh, Pope Leo was, was very influential at the Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon in 451, a very important council, uh, and his actions helped to define the relationship between papal authority and the authority of a council of bishops. And this becomes an ongoing concern uh, for the rest of time, okay? It's still an issue today. How, how much authority does a pope have on his own? And how much does a, a synod of bishops or a council of bishops, how much authority do they have? This is an ongoing question. And it's uh, fair to say that the West and the East have had very different understandings of it. So uh, what happened at this council of Castan was that he had written a letter uh, it's called the Tome of Leo. You can Wikipedia it. Uh, it'll tell you some pretty reasonable things. And he's, he's defined or helped to set out what we mean by the divine and human natures of Jesus. Uh, and this letter or tome that he wrote uh, was read out of the council and the, the bishops of the council said, okay, this is the faith of our fathers. This is the words of Peter spoken through Leo. And uh, this is a, is a good way to, to remember the papacy, that it is Peter speaking and handing on this tradition. So there's, it, it's not very likely the Pope is going to come out tomorrow and tell us some strange new dogma that we've never heard of before. Okay? So even the dogmas on, uh, on Mary uh, of the last century or two, uh, these, are, these are not innovations. These are beliefs that the church has had since very early in time. So uh, the responsibility of the Pope then is to hand down this faith as he's received it from Peter and his successors. The responsibility for the council, on the other hand, was to define and specify normative tradition in binding form, I'll explain all this, in language appropriate to the disputes of the day by their own agreed formulation of the truth of the gospel. Okay, so basically the Pope can't know how to speak to every individual church, okay? Uh, when you go to a papal audience, it's incredible that they you know, often give the, the, the ubi et orbi blessing in 30 languages. It happens. Pope John Paul II was incredible. So was Benedict as well. But it doesn't mean that they can sit and have a conversation with people of every language and race and custom. So the, one of the responsibilities of the bishops then 
is to understand what this handed on faith means for all the particular or the local churches but to keep this faith the same in every culture every language every continent okay so this is this dialectic this relationship between the pope and his councils or pope and councils is really really crucial to the understanding of authority in the church now uh, modern discussions between Rome and the Orthodox churches have progressed in a very promising manner uh, as Orthodox theologians and bishops come to remember the role of the Bishop of Rome in maintaining communion and the orthodoxy of faith and at the same time Rome is coming to understand more fully the role of individual bishops and the authority vested in councils and synods of bishops and in particular since the second vatican council there's been a lot of progress made from the roman side uh, particularly through the leadership of popes who really want the two lungs of the church the east and the west to breathe together again uh, there's some quite amazing uh, stories of, uh, of popes like pope paul vi who fell to the ground and embraced the feet of uh, one of the patriarchs of the east uh, is as a, a means of showing his his uh, respect uh, for that patriarch and for the, the unity that he desired between the two churches. So let's move forward and consider this division between the East and the West a little bit more. Uh, in the ninth century, there's a, a particular case of uh, the patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, Photius, uh, uh, who uh, there were some concerns about his election, and three different popes, uh, one after another, Nicholas the First, Hadrian the Second, and John the Eighth, all got involved in 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 the, the situation, and uh, it ended up with the pope actually being deposed and condemned by a council in Constantinople in 867, and in the end. The, the, this final Pope, Pope John VIII, uh, managed to achieve communion again. But in the, in the wake of this episode, the East came to recognise more that the judicial and the legal powers of the papacy, so the authority basically of the, of the Pope to be able to do anything, were actually validated through the College of Bishops in their, their understanding. And, uh, and this, this ends up becoming an article of contention. We should also talk about the Great Schism between the East and West, which was sort of formalised, you could say, in 1054. Um, so it's, it's the end result of uh, various events that had happened. You had the iconoclast controversy two, two centuries earlier. You had some Catholic uh, priests start putting the filioque clause in, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is the filioque clause. It's still a, uh, an article of division between the churches, the East and the West, though it's becoming much less of a, a problem. There's been some really productive uh, meetings between Rome and the East in the last couple of decades and, and it's a less important issue than it used to be. 
So uh, the, the actual schism, there, were, there was issues with military uh, cooperation between the East and West at the time. And then I think the, the way I always like to explain it is that if everyone had had mobile phones, and there hadn't been 100,000 people in St. Peter's Square, so the Pope could get a line out, then there probably would have been very few issues. But you're talking about the tyranny of distance, which meant that the, the people that the Pope sent down to, uh, the Pope was uh, Leo the, the Ninth, the people that Pope Leo the Ninth sent down to Constantinople to, to chat with, uh, uh, with people there, had one idea of what, what it should be, but the Pope was months away from being able to actually receive any information. And so there ended up being excommunications on both sides. And before you know it, the churches are, are separate. Now, we have to say that probably most people in the East and in the West didn't actually realize there was a separation, that there was, they'd mutually excommunicated each other for a fair while. And this happened a lot in the early church. You hear of uh, in the, the early 4th century, for example, uh, St. John Chrysostom had been exiled and, and ended up dying in exile. And, and there was all sorts of excommunications at that time. And for, for years, Rome and Alexandria and Constantinople and Antioch were in and out of communion with each other. Probably changed very little, the average punter. But, uh, of course, for us, it's... Uh, it's very interesting. And we now have the legacy of this great schism, unfortunately. Uh, I'd like to jump forward to the, the Reformation uh, to just really say one thing. Uh, Martin Luther is on record as saying that he had no desire to be separate from Rome. I want to just read a couple of little things that he wrote a year after he posted the 95 Theses. Uh, so this is in about 1519, okay? He said, I never approved of a schism, nor will I approve of it for all eternity. That the Roman church is more honored by God than all others is not to be doubted. That's pretty full on, okay? St. Peter and St. Paul, 46 popes, some hundreds of thousands of martyrs have laid down their lives in its communion, having overcome hell and the world. So the, the eyes of God rest on the Roman church with special favor. Though nowadays everything is in a wretched state, it is no ground for separating from the church. It's no ground. Even though there was all these problems with the church, which there was, and this is why you had to have the Council of Trent to sort of fix some of the, the, the problems that were in the church. Uh, he said this is actually the time when we should be staying close together because things are going to get worse, so we need to maintain communion. So he goes on, but uh, he, at this time anyway, he actually believed that uh, it was possible to, to maintain communion somehow. So uh, I'd like to very quickly consider the modern papacy. Uh, just I want to read very, some very short segments from the homilies that Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and Pope Francis uh, gave at their inauguration masses because it tells us something about how they viewed the papacy. 
but maybe I'll read less than I was going to because we're going to finish very shortly. Uh, so uh, Peter came to Rome. This is John Paul II. What else but obedience to the inspiration received from the Lord guided him and brought him to this city, the heart of the empire. Perhaps the fishermen of Galilee did not want to come here. Perhaps he would have preferred to stay there on the shores of the lake of Genesaret with his boats and his nets, but guided by the Lord, obedient to his inspiration, he came here. Yes, brothers and, so brothers and sons and daughters, Rome is the sea of Peter. Down the centuries, new bishops continually succeed him in this sea. Today, a new bishop comes to the chair of Peter in Rome, a bishop full of trepidation, conscious of his unworthiness. And how could one not tremble before the greatness of this call and before the universal mission of this sea of Rome? If we don't understand that being Pope is not really, first and foremost, a position of honour, but a position of service and service to death, then we completely misunderstand the papacy. Certainly our popes of recent times fully understand that. This is not about wielding power. Pope Benedict XVI says, uh, we were also consoled as we made our solemn entrance into conclave to elect the one whom the Lord had chosen. How would we be able to discern his name? How could 115 bishops from every culture and every country discover the one on whom the Lord wished to confer the mission of binding and loosing? Once again, we knew that we were not alone. We knew that we were surrounded, led and guided by the friends of God. And now, at this moment, weak servant of God that I am, I must assume this enormous task, which truly exceeds all human capacity. Exceeds all human capacity. It's true. How can I do this? How will I be able to do it? All of you, my dear friends, have just invoked the entire host of saints, represented by some of the great names in the history of God's dealings with mankind. In this way, I too can say with renewed conviction, I am not alone. I do not have to carry alone what in truth I could never carry alone. All the saints of God are there to protect me, to sustain me and to carry me. And your prayers, my dear friends, your indulgence, your love, your faith, and your hope accompany me. So he, he says a lot more, of course, but he, he gives an outline of his job description, if there's such a thing for the, pap for the papacy. He says, my real program of governance is not to do my own will, not to pursue my own ideas, but to listen together with the whole church to the word and the will of the Lord to be guided by him so that he himself will lead the church at this hour of our history. I think people noticed the big difference between Cardinal Ratzinger, head of the, uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, and Pope Benedict XVI, who suddenly seemed to change his personality. In actual fact, he didn't change his personality, but he recognised the, the uh, clear difference in the roles that the Holy Spirit was asking him to perform. He had a very specific role at the congregation and he had a, a very particular role as Pope. And one of those roles as Pope was really to listen to the people and to, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through him to guide his people. Uh, I'll move quickly on to, to Pope Francis. Uh, so 
Today, together with the Feast of St. Joseph, we are celebrating the beginning of the ministry of the new Bishop of Rome, the successor of Peter, which also involves a certain power. Certainly, Jesus Christ conferred power upon Peter, but what sort of power was it? This is very important. Jesus' three questions to Peter about love are followed by three commands. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Let us never forget that authentic power is service and that the Pope too, when exercising power, must enter ever more fully into that service which has its radiant culmination on the cross. He must be inspired by the lowly, concrete and faithful service which marked St. Joseph and like him, he must open his arms to protect all of God's people and embrace with tender affection the whole of humanity, especially the poorest, the weakest, the least important, those whom Matthew lists in the final judgment on love, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and those in prison. Only those who serve with love are able to protect. I think every day we see something new in, uh, on, uh, from Pope Francis's ministry that shows us that, you know, ducking next door to the the Sisters of Charity to, to meet the homeless, you know. Uh, did he go there again for Christmas? I can't remember. He's, he's amazing like this. So it's a, a real role of service. The only other thing I'd like to say before we finish is that the role of the Pope is that he is the focal point of unity for the Church. So straight from the Catechism, Catechism 882. The Pope, Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman Pontiff, by reason of his office as Vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire Church, has full supreme and universal power over the whole Church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Okay, so he has this power and authority, but everything else we read points to the fact that his major role is unity and service in love. So I'm just going to recommend some things for you to read because I will finish. I would invite you to read uh, from Ut Unum Sint, uh, number uh, particularly uh, paragraph 94 and 5. Okay, so ut unum sint. I can give you these references if you want to come up after. Okay, uh, I invite you to read Matthew 18, 15 to 18, where uh, we have this, uh, this case of uh, if, one person, if one person sins against you, you bring them before the church and then they, uh, they can be judged in front of the church. And I read something recently that what would you do if you had a Baptist and a Methodist and they had a disagreement with each other? Which church would they bring them to? That's a genuine question. They're my Christian brother or sister. They're baptised. So if I have a problem with them, if I want to live this gospel from Matthew 18, then which church do I bring them before to, to, for judgment and for reconciliation? Uh, I would also invite you to read from... Uh, there's a, a very, very well-known book on the Orthodox Church. Okay, It's called The Orthodox Church. 
It's by a bishop, Callistos Ware. Timothy Ware was his name before he became bishop. Uh, it's a very useful overview of the Orthodox Church. Uh, and so I invite you to, to go to that to, to find out a bit more about the, what the Orthodox think about papal primacy. Uh, and then uh, on papal infallibility, which is another uh, challenging question on the papacy, I invite you to read the Catechism, particularly around 891, 895, that sort of area. Okay. And almost there. Uh, in fact, actually, you can go right from 880. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, one last thing. Uh, no, we might leave that there, actually. Okay. And if you're really, really keen, there's lots of canon law that goes into it in more depth, okay? Someone out there is interested, I know you are. Canon 3.30 through to like later, okay? Go for your life. So thank you very much and see you tonight morning. That was Kevin Wagner with The Papacy. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.